Good morning. Labor Day weekend opportunity. Some families to be able to pull away for their last bit uh, before the um, everyday routines of life, school-wise, otherwise, become more the norm. Labor Day weekend makes me pause to think too about the ultimate form of labor that took place when Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, complete, final, and because of that, we find our secure salvation in him and him alone. The, a year ago this Sunday, we began our series in the Psalms. And today, we are entering book four of the Psalms. And so I'd love for you now to take your Bibles, and we are turning to Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 is, well, it's a marker in the Psalms. Here you will find that Psalm 89 left people in exile, feeling as though uh, the throne has been lost, the promises of God could be questioned, and wondering just where are you, Lord, in the midst of all of this? They're in exile. But then, lo and behold, what you and I find at this point is that Psalm 90 breaks in and in Psalm 90, on book 4, what you will now find is that the oldest of the Psalms, Psalm penned by Moses, Psalm 90, addresses that feeling of being displaced, of being in exile, being isolated, when he, a man who himself understood what it meant to be displaced and exiled, will now draw attention to the whole idea of what it means to find your dwelling place in the Lord and in the Lord alone. I'd love to read to you from verse 1 down through verse 12 as we get some traction in trying to understand how these verses relate to modern-day life. Because here now, you and I are told, it's a prayer of Moses, a man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes. It's renewed, and in the evening, fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. 
they're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So this morning I'd like to talk about God's relationship to time and how that relates to you and to me. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. So our Father, what we want to do now is to ponder how in the fullness of time, as Paul put it in Galatians 4, you sent forth your Son. He came to die for our sins. Perfectly timed. Help us, Father, to be able to distinguish between what's timeless and what's time-bound. Help us to distinguish between the eternal and the temporal. And when we do it, Father, you are teaching us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So I'm praying, Father, in this service, in the service that preceded, for those watching online at this moment or in the days to come, that collectively now, as we go deep into your word, we are going to be developing hearts of wisdom, saturating our, our entire being, Father, with your truth. So, Father, in these moments are important. Even on this Labor Day weekend, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here now to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you distinguish between what's changeless and what's changeable? This was an issue that came to my attention over the past days when the news reports offered us the information that Mikhail Gorbachev had passed away, the former leader of what was then the Soviet Union. My mind went back to a story as I was pondering the various news accounts. A story about the last of the cosmonauts that would be launched into outer space during that time period of Gorbachev's rule. His name is Sergei Krikalov, <coughs> not a household name by and large. But he was living a rather comfortable life, you see, in what was then Leningrad. He believed that the Communist Party was the be-all, end-all, and he endorsed Gorbachev as leader, and he dismissed Boris Yeltsin as simply a, a political nobody. But Sergei Krikalov, the Russian cosmonaut, when he was shot into space as part of the Soviet program, found that his stay was going to be extended 
Initially, the plan was for a five-month journey. It stretched in ten months before he landed back on Earth. But all the changes that occurred in ten months' time. When he returned, the Soviet Union was no more. It had been broken up. His hometown, Leningrad, was renamed St. Petersburg. Mr. Gorbachev himself had just signed a million-dollar contract for a book deal. And that Boris Yeltsin that he looked down upon was now president of Russia. In that 10-month time, the Communist Party had lost its power. We're told that Mr. Krikalov, who had a substantial income going up, when he came back down, could not even purchase a pair of scissors to cut the USSR insignia off his tattered uniform. For you see, in less than a year, without warning, while he circled the earth, a new era began. And what he thought in his mind was changeless, was in reality unchangeable. This has direct bearing upon what we are looking at this morning. And what we want to do now is to be able to explore God's relationship to time. I want to think through with you the difference between what is timeless, what is timely, what is time-bound. I want to think with you what is changeless, what is changeable. Because the danger so often in life is that we want to make the changeable and reality changeless. We want to make the temporal eternal and we fail to develop in the process a heart of wisdom where we are called to make such distinctions that God makes. This is what this psalm does for you. It does for me. Now Moses, as he pens these words, he does so towards the end of his life. And what he offers us in his 120 years of living is a vantage point on time that most people can't offer. So what I want to do with you now is to draw out three considerations that are found in these verses, that in terms of God's relationship to time. And the first comes out of verses 1 and 2, where you begin with me by noting now the dwelling place that he, speaking of God, has provided. Check it out with me. Because it begins, Lord. Here's the idea of the sovereign one. Master. Master of the universe. Lord. You have been our dwelling place. Hit the pause button. Moses pens this. When he himself had led the, the Israelites to 42 different settings in the course of their wilderness wanderings. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 33. What he's telling you, 
what he's telling me is that one who has put faith and trust in Messiah, whom we know as Christ Jesus, has an eternal zip code. We have one eternal dwelling place. And we allow that to shape the way in which we view time. Now, as he pens his thoughts, he might go back to Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, what we find is that Adam and Eve had to change zip codes. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And God would remind them of that fact continuously as they would become, and Cain, their son, wanderers, if you will. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Now Moses would have understood the value of a dwelling place, longing for permanence. Forty years were spent, outstanding education in the land of Egypt, only to be cast out to spend 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, changing zip code, having to deal with the whole matter of just where and what is home. Returning to Egypt only now to find that he will be taking a flock, not of sheep, but of people, back out into that same wilderness. Now, he didn't waste his time. He invested his time. He learned the wilderness well so that he could guide his people, you see, through the wilderness journeys. You don't spend time. You don't waste time. You invest time in your wilderness, never knowing how God is going to use the present to shape the future, learning how the past can shape the present, connecting the dots of the past, the present, and the future as it relates to the matter of time. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. This is home. Some of us have lived in various settings. Some of us have had various zip codes. Moses is saying, God is my home. When in the Newer Testament you read of Paul writing of what it means to be in Christ Jesus, you understand that that is your ultimate home right there. But we are living in a culture of exile where people are continuously wrestling with, where do I fit in? I'm looking for somewhere that I can say I belong. And then Dr. Paul Tournier opens our eyes to this counseling session he has, where he writes, the words were those of a young student with whom I had formed a deep friendship, and he was sitting by my fireplace. He was telling me of his difficulties, of the anxiety that never left him, which at times turned to panic and to flight, and he was trying to look objectively at what was going on inside himself and to understand it. And then as if summing up his thoughts, he looked up at me 
and said, quote, basically, I'm always looking for a place for somewhere to be, unquote. What I would argue for is that those that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are homeless. And they lack that sense of security of just where do I fit in in this world? Where do I belong? Things seem so unnatural. How do I find my fit? God is saying, your fit is found in me. This is where your identity and your security is to be established. You have been our dwelling place as he looks back over the generations of Abraham who had to continuously be on the move. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph displaced from family and having to move into Egypt. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations as he now recounts that very fact as he looks back over time. But now... And this is so good. I want you to see as he shifts into verse 2 at this point. He goes on to say here, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. At the beginning of verse 2, when he writes of mountains... You and I know Moses knew something about mountains. When he received the Ten Commandments, he stood on Mount Sinai. In his final days, God buried him in an unknown place on Mount Nebo. And so now he is pondering his creator as it relates and he relates to his creation. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And he does not confuse the creator with the creation in the midst of it all. R.C. Sproul. Chills go up and down my spine when I see the word aseity. I know it's an uncommon word. And although children do not say aseity, every child is concerned about the concept the world represents. You'll recognize it. Mommy, who made me? God made you, honey. Well, Mommy, who made the sky and the trees? God made the sky and the trees. God made everything. Mommy, who made God? Now, we, time-bound people, think in terms of cause and effect. God creates the world. He's the cause, and we are the effect. We would argue that God is the uncaused cause. He is always present. 
You can ponder now how Moses, as he's penning these words, is reflecting back at his own wilderness experience that he invested rather than wasted. In Exodus chapter 3, he says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God is eternally present. God stands outside of time. God is the creator of time. There was pushback against Jesus, you know. After all, he had said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am We are told that they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he had just claimed divinity. He had linked himself to the I am statement of God. And in the Hebrew, I am comes from the word Yahweh. Before Abraham was Yahweh is what Jesus was saying. Now, you begin to pull this together and you are astounded at the way in which all of this begins to fit. Dr. Grudem, Wayne Grudem, former professor of mine, he writes, the fact that God never began to exist can also be concluded from the fact that God created all things that he himself is an immaterial spirit. God, before God made the universe, there was no matter. But then he created all things. And the study of physics tells us that matter, time, and space must all occur together. So, mummy, who made God? But the grand difference between Humanity and God is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. You see? And so now we've got something to work with here. We are understanding the relationship of time to eternity, eternity to time, and how significant it was that Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am. And now, you're on to your second consideration. Because we're building a bridge from verses 1 and 2 to now verses 3 through 12. Because in verses 1 and 2, what you and I explored together here was the dwelling place, our zip code that he has provided, it's eternal, 
But second of all, I want you to see now in the midst of time and relates to the eternity, the challenging trials that he's permitted. If you are going to have to manage time well, then you're going to have to manage your trials well, which is something that Moses would learn. And now he's reflecting upon all the years that have not been wasted, but invested. And now he's sharing his perspectives in this psalm for you and for me to understand as he picks it up now in verse 3. You return, man, to dust and say, return, O children of man. What's he doing? Was the human writer inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy? He would know the words from Genesis 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, God said to Adam. And so now with that as the rooting for what he's penning here, Moses then writes, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of men. But what I want you to see now is this. He connects time in verse 3 to eternity in verse 4. And the temporal in verse 3 to the eternal in verse 4. This is brilliant. Because now what he goes on to say at this point is this. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You know the conversation. Man asked God how long a million years was to God. And God replied, it's just like a, a single second of your time, my child. So the man asked him, what about a million dollars? And the Lord replied, and to me, it's just like a single penny. So the man gathered himself up and said, well, then, Lord, could I have one of your pennies? And God said, certainly, my child, just a second. See what we're saying? See what he's doing? See how this fits together? As you and I grapple with the changeless as it relates to the changeables of life, and so many of us have had so many changeables, and how we want to make what we value changeless, and then another changeable moment breaks in. What do you do with it? Well, Moses does not waste his experience. He invests his experience. And so in verse 5, he says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. If you've ever been in the Middle East, you know what he's about to say next is, is just par for the course here. In the morning it flourishes, is renewed. In the evening, 
fades, withers, and such is the analogy of nature. Those that know something about the film industry are aware of the Swedish film director Ingmar Bergman, who in his late 30s had to grapple with the idea of what was coming in terms of future old age for him. He said this, it's like climbing a mountain. You climb from ledge to ledge, and the higher you get, the more tired and breathless you become. But your view becomes much more extensive. And now what Moses is doing in the latter years of his life, because most likely when you see this psalm, you connect it with the phraseology in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 33, but before, of course, Deuteronomy 34. And you see that he's got this mountaintop perspective on life and upon time. And what we need to do to be able to analyze time well is to allow for the eternal perspective from God to shed light on the temporal experiences of our lives. Well, you can see him now. He's, he's pondering the challenges that he's faced. We're brought to an end by your anger. Your wrath we are dismayed. And he realizes that he ticked God off at one point when he attempted to steal glory from God by smiting a rock instead of speaking to it as God had instructed him. And then, of course... And there was the whole issue of the uh, children of Israel that were rebelling against God while, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. You've set you, our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We, become, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Here in a... This man who would live 120 years informs us that the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Though I know at the start of the football season, some of us are in overtime, nonetheless. Yet there spans but toil and trouble. And they're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And so now Moses is looking back at the way in which God dealt with the rebellion of the Israelites, and he needs a new, fresh reminder on time. And here it comes in verse 12. So teach us to number our days. Notice that it does not read, so teach us to number our years. Particularly the ones that end in zeros. So teach us to number our days. Have you ever noticed that the word count is tied to the word accountant? So we give an accounting as we count the days of our lives. Why? Not to leave it there. There's purpose to this. It's so that you and I, so that we can get a heart of wisdom. We're not born with it. 
And what strikes me is that the Hebrew word in verse 12, the Hebrew word is chokmah, which we've noted in prior times means clearly masterful understanding, skill, expertise. Wisdom, masterful understanding, skill, expertise. You are taking the knowledge and the information now and you're processing it into the practical realities of how you maneuver through the wilderness of your own journey. You've got to know the time. The men of Issachar were men who understood the times and that's why David relied upon them. In a Reader's Digest article of years ago, a young man during the days of World War II penned one evening in Albany, New York. I asked a sailor what time it was, and he pulled out a huge watch and replied, 7.20. I knew it was later. Your watch has stopped, hasn't it, I asked. No, he said, I'm still on Mountain Standard Time. I'm from southern Utah. When I joined the Navy, my dad gave me this watch, and he said it helped me remember home. When my watch says 5 a.m., I know that my dad's rolling out to milk the cows, and any night when it says 7.30, I know the whole family's around a well-spread table, and dad is thanking God for what they're about to eat. He also prays that God would watch out over me, and I can almost smell the hot biscuits and the bacon. And thinking about those things, he writes, that makes me want to fight when the going gets tough. And then he concluded, I can find out what time it is, where I am, easy enough. But what I want to know is, what time is it back home? Now you take the dwelling place idea of verse 1, which is eternal. That's home. And you tie it into where you are now. And now you are developing a heart of wisdom as the timeless is being applied in a matter that is timely. You see. And now you're beginning to address the changeless and the changeables of life. We're on to our third and final consideration. We've noted the dwelling place that God has provided and the challenging trials that he has permitted. You don't waste them, you, you invest them. But now thirdly, the steadfast love that he has exhibited, it begins now in verse 13 with this word, return, which immediately captured my attention, because in the Hebrew, the word shuv, it also can be translated relent or turn, and it was used to describe that time in which, in which the Israelites had rebelled against God and had erected an, uh, a golden calf. They're in the wilderness. It was the word that God would hear Moses cry out to him in the form of a prayer where in seeking him, Moses implored God with these words after God said, I'm going to start all over again and make a new nation out of you, Moses. Oh, Lord, 
Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with the mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains? There's the mountains again. And to consume them from the face of the earth. Here's the word, turn. This is Moses speaking to God. Shub in the Hebrew. Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. This is the same word now he uses in, in Psalm 90 verse 13. Return, O Lord, question mark. How long? And maybe you grapple with that. Because you want everything, the temporal, to be eternal. You've been to Arlington. You've probably seen what Jacqueline Kennedy asked for to remember her husband, the eternal flame, November of 1963. But what's interesting, according to AccuWeather, is that the flame has accidentally been extinguished at least twice in the course of time. And the first time the flame was extinguished, which he dubbed the eternal flame, was December 10th of 1963, where the superintendent of Arlington National Cemetery at the time, John Metzler, tells the Associated Press that a group of students from a parochial school, Roman Catholic, out to honor the first Roman Catholic president, group of children 8 to 11 years of age had been taking turns sprinkling the grave with what he called holy water when the cap came off the bottle and a stream of water hit the flame and extinguished it. And lo and behold, the eternal flame became very temporal. And such is life. But you see, the one who said, I am, three days later was raised from the grave. And he validated the statement, I am. So now the glory is found in the eternal one. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on our, your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Hebrew word hesed here. Very difficult word to translate into the English. It has to do with God's loyal, faithful love. Why? that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. And now you're bringing joy to life because you take the idea of being glad for all our days in verse 14 and tie it back to developing a heart of wisdom as you've learned to count the days. And out of all this, then, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years that we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants. And on this Labor Day weekend and comings and goings of people, let your work, your labor, be shown to your servants. And you know what happened for Moses? That is exactly what took place. He didn't get to, in his own days, see the promised land, did he? But in Matthew chapter 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, another mount, lo and behold, Elijah and Moses are escorted to the presence of Jesus Christ. And there, Moses had opportunity to see promise fulfilled. He is able to see the labor that God has produced. 
he then stood in the promised land. You can read about it in the 17th chapter of Matthew. Let your work be shown to your servants and to your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Let the work of our hands be upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands on this Labor Day weekend. And you pull it together. And now you've got the threefold perspective that connects the idea of teaching us to number our days that we might and get, you see, a heart of wisdom, which means involves masterful understanding, skill, and expertise in handling the wildernesses of our lives. For as Teddy Roosevelt once wrote, wisdom is nine-tenths a matter of being wise in time. Most of us are too often wise after the event. But when Jesus Christ died for your sins and mine, and the eternal broke into the temporal, the result is all who have established their zip code in God and God alone are able to experience the joy of drawing on eternal wisdom that comes to a personal relationship with Christ and Christ alone. On this Labor Day weekend, let's stand together. Father, for those that gathered in first service, for those that gathered in this service, for those that have been watching online during this hour, and who will be watching over the course of today and the days, if not weeks, to come, I pray now that you will take the timeless Applied in a way that is timely. Teach us to number our days. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Changeless truths. For these changing times. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.